FTBD is proudly brought to you by Black Dog Coaching, the only online fitness and nutrition company that work exclusively with people in the mental health space. While other fitness and nutrition companies focus purely on looking good, Black Dog Coaching offers full spectrum coaching that incorporates fitness, nutrition, mindset, habits, routines, and lifestyle choices to support positive mental health. So if you're battling the black dog, there's two things you need to do. Number one, contact your GP and arrange a mental health care plan with your mental health professional. And number two, contact Black Dog Coaching. Because while a mental health professional is a very important piece of the puzzle, it's just one small piece of the mental health pie. For the other 90%, Black Dog Coaching has got your back. For more information, check out www.blackdogcoaching forward slash information. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to FTBD, that is Fuck the Black Dog. We're actually doing two at once here. We're recording, but we're also going live to Facebook. So the first thing you'll notice is that I am shamelessly repping uh, some uh, Dan Fitz merch here along with Black Dog Brotherhood. Appreciate uh, that, mate. There's a good chance that I'm probably going to get a Facebook ban for it, but it'd be totally worth it. All right, so before we introduce today's guest, uh, as always, there are a couple of things that we do want to cover off on. Fuck the Black Dog is all about mental health. We do talk about some topics that some people do find triggering. If throughout this uh, interview you find there is something that is triggering you, nobody is forcing you to listen to it, feel free to leave at any time. But I would ask, if there's something in here that you find does act as a bit of a trigger for you, take a moment to reflect on what that could be and why it actually triggers you. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest, Mr. Dan Fitz. So Dan is another coach, very similar to myself and in the same sort of space, and we met through a coaching program a little while ago. But uh, like myself, Dan has a, uh, a very interesting history and it's one that I feel that many people out there can take some uh, some valuable points from. So Dan, first of all, welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Neil. Trigger warning, holy shit. I probably should have thought of that myself. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I suppose the logical place to start is uh, I actually listened to your own podcast on the way over here to get a bit of background for you. First of all, you grew up in Frankston. My condolences. Mm. I, do, I, do, I do feel for you growing up in Frankston. Mate, I've, I've embraced it. It's you, a beautiful place. It's on a beach. It is, is it a beach though? Is it a beach? Oh, it's a bay, but it's still a beach. All right. Give us a little bit of a rundown. So before we get into where you are now and why you do what you do, I want people to get a bit of an understanding about who Dan Fitz is and where he came from. It's a very complicated question, isn't it? It's a big question, especially knowing what I know. I guess I'll give you the short answer and the introduction into my life and how I found myself doing this. Uh, I lived a pretty normal life. I lived a pretty normal life up until around 10 years old. And for whatever reason, which I never really discovered, my mother became an alcoholic, a violent, destructive alcoholic, and destroyed my family, destroyed my life. And Apart from fucking up my life about 12 years after that, eventually I realized, ah, I could probably stop people from getting in this position. So I became qualified and I, I put my, let's call it wisdom and knowledge into practical use. Okay. Was it a gradual, did it just sort of happen over a very short period of time that she just started drinking everything went to shit or was there a gradual decline sort of leading into it? It was very gradual. It was about a three-year period where I was living in a normal house, a normal middle-class house, and then anyone that's uh, lived with an alcoholic and uh, anyone that's addicted to anything, it becomes secretive, it becomes destructive, finances go out the window, 
and then eventually the very love for the people that you care about, whether it's there or not, you turn against them. So I went from a kid that was doing relatively well in school to a complete, uh, for lack of better words, a basket case and a menace to society. And obviously, hand in hand with being or living with somebody who has alcoholism, there was you were exposed to some pretty gnarly domestic violence early on as well. Oh yeah, absolutely, and I'm glad we have a trigger warning, and I'm relatively comfortable talking about this stuff now. And if you are experiencing this, either from a partner or your own mother, or maybe even yourself, like you need to be conscious of how bad things have gotten. When I tell these stories, and I look back. Or when I work with people who are, uh, I guess, in similar situations, I think, holy fuck, like, how did you survive that? How did you deal with that? But People ask you the exact same thing. Yeah, you, you just cope. But then when guys say, I'm doing my best, or I'm just getting by, I mean, my best wasn't very good, or I was very good at doing the wrong thing. So you develop uh, ways of dealing with the pain, and that's usually through alcohol or drugs, I really enjoyed uh, destructive and bad behavior, and it gave me an identity. I remember witnessing uh, my mum stab my dad with a kitchen knife in a very heated argument. Now again, I don't have any reference point to what it's not like to see that, so... Yeah. For you, that was just life, that was just the norm. Yeah, it was just kind of life, and I look back on that moment, I remember the cops that came around to arrest my mum, they looked at me like, this kid's and they're right, I, I was. There wasn't really uh, systems or anything in place to help someone deal with that. I know adults struggle to deal with that, so... What chance did the kid have? Yeah, I mean, it, it planted a seed of violence and alcoholism that manifested later on. So you started drinking quite early as a result of that as well, didn't you? Yeah, here's the thing. I, I didn't drink or do drugs for... I, from what I remember, about two years. So from about 10 to 12... No drugs, no alcohol, just behavior did a complete 360 at school, anyone I associated with. And I remember the um, principal sat me down. He was like, do you have a drug problem? And my mother was in the room, she was drunk. Yeah. And I'm like, you really uh, are not very good at your job. You can't read human behavior very well. But I mean, when you're the kid and you're living with someone who's very good at hiding this problem and, and blaming the behavior and whatever. I mean, if they wanted to see bad, I definitely went uh, and showed them that. And, and that's why I wanted to work with people, I guess, in worst case scenarios. I mean, very challenging and um, takes a lot of work, as you know. Yep. But I also know if you give them the right tools, they can find their way out instead of saying, you have a drug problem. It's like, no shit, yeah. but why? So do you feel like, through your own experiences, because I mean, you've also got, I mean, people can Google it, so you've got a bit of a, bit of a criminal record behind you. Yeah, booted yeah your first, Booted your first car at 12, went down the wrong path, but now, it's safe to say you're as close to being as fully rehabilitated as you know, any man can be, and you've got the opportunity to give that to other men. So do you feel that, obviously, in that space, people who are battling addiction and alcoholism who have a criminal record behind them, there's still a chance to turn it all around at some point with the right guidance. Absolutely, I don't think all our issues and problems come from our childhood, but I mean that uh, reference that you mentioned about stealing the car, 
I wasn't drunk, I wasn't on drugs, I was just wandering the street with a friend and we learned how to do it from the older guys and didn't feel like walking home. So, boosted the car. I mean, it wasn't like crime, it was just, I want to ride home. Well, it, in your mind at that point in we time. We pulled up behind a, a police car about 2am at a red light. So here we are sitting in a stolen car behind a police car at a red light. Like, my heart rate went through the roof, I remember that. And I remember knowing that probably shouldn't have been doing that. But from what I experienced, like when you stab someone in front of your kids, that generally says you don't care. And I, uh, I developed a passion for not really caring. Yep. With regards to your mum, there was a point in your own podcast where you said it was eventually her passing that played a big part in you sitting back and going, wow, I've really got to fucking sort my shit out and sort it out soon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, my sister is uh, very talented in, in the same field as me. She actually has a PhD. She was always on the right path. She channeled, she went through the same experiences and she channeled her pain into uh, becoming well-educated and getting out of there with her education. I went deeper into the, the opposite end of the spectrum and then we, we re-linked up around, I believe it was 23. Uh, I was 23 when my mother actually died and I stopped talking to her at 19. So I had the knowledge and the wisdom enough to know what this person is doing with her destructive relationships and her abuse and, and that kind of thing. It's not good for me. So I had something going for me back then. But even still not talking to your mother for four years and then eventually going to a funeral it does affect you and uh, on the coroner's report uh, the police said that she'd been there about three or four days before they found her so that graphic visual and being at that funeral uh, death is very final and there's no coming back from that so I'm a slow learner <laughs> I'm a very slow learner so although I got the lesson it still took me a little while to apply I mean there was still a lot of uh, issues with alcohol and violence but it was definitely uh, a pinnacle point where I thought I'm either going to end up in this box or things are going to get a whole lot worse. And to think that it could get worse at that point, so your mum passed when you were 23 and you actually, you did a stint in prison when you were 21, so to think that there was still room for things to get worse at that point, yeah. what did that look like thinking like, because obviously if you thought that things would get worse, that's an awareness that this isn't even rock bottom yet, that things can get worse, yeah. what was that like? Well, that's the scary thing about society's perception of what's going on out there. If they knew the crime rate, and I don't mean from being a criminal, I mean from working on the other side of the fence, if they knew the statistics of crime, if they knew how bad things were, it'd be a very different discussion going on. But whatever reason, the media hides that from people. You can fall so far that you would not believe, as you probably know. I mean. Suicide is one thing, but to continue living a destructive and dangerous lifestyle, it doesn't only affect you, it affects the people around you. That's how people end up dying, that's how innocent people get hurt, and that's how uh, people get flipped, so to speak. Like one minute they're good kids, the next is good parents. Do you feel like at any point in your life you truly hit your rock bottom? What do you think was your rock bottom? And when you were in that place, did you actually think, did you hit the point where you're like, I can't do this anymore, I want out? Did you get to that point where suicide became a thought or an option at any point? 
Oh yeah, I, I contemplated suicide many times, but the only reason I didn't was because so many friends had done it, so I knew the pain of that time. So that was a blessing, that unbearable pain of not only wanting to die, but all my friends are dead, and I'm feeling their pain. But that was also the very thing that made me plant incredibly strong uh, when it comes to adversity and challenges. So there was many levels of rock bottom depending on how you define that. But here's the thing, if you grew up uh, in a rough environment, I mean, I connected with another coach who, he grew up in the hood in America. Yeah, okay. And we were talking about uh, financially struggling in business. We were talking about negative emotions and we kind of came to this conclusion where the only way we're going to get better is understand that we don't even give a shit if we're broke. We don't give a shit if like uh, life is a challenge because we're so used to it. Like it's, it's our normal. Yeah. So my rock bottom uh, could be someone's help, but that was just normal for me. I actually had this conversation with somebody. Somebody once told me that um, that I didn't know what true rock bottom was. But I was in an argument, and they said, "You've got no fucking idea what rock bottom is." And it actually got me thinking for a long period of time. And I, it, it, it dawned on me: it's like rock bottom is subjective, subjective. If you've got somebody who grew up in a, you know a high socioeconomic standing, that they've, they've had money, they've had cars, they've had everything, and all of a sudden they've got to do I don't know a week on the street or something like that, that would fucking destroy. Them. That would be pure, pure rock bottom. But if you've got somebody who grew up on the main streets and then all of a sudden they've got a roof over their head, they're like, that's a dream come true. So rock bottom is very, very subjective depending on where you've come from. And I think, as you've said, you know, the fact that you've been through what you've been through and you've seen so many friends choose to take their own life, that's given you that element of strength where with other people that would be almost unbearable. Pain is all relative. I mean, uh, an ex-partner told me that she wanted to play uh, saxophone. Her whole through high school wanted to play saxophone, but her mouth didn't fit the right mouthpiece. And then she told me how she couldn't play saxophone and explained it to me like the worst thing in the world. And I, I get it, pain is relative, and that's an unfortunate story, but I also couldn't really relate to it. But the thing about pain is, although it might feel like the worst thing in the world, I've seen the people that I've coached in prison, the people that I've brought back from cleaning their revolver too much every night. Yeah. One of the worst stories I've heard, I said to a young fellow who's coaching in prison, I said, when was the first time you used serious drugs? And he said to me, when I was 12, I was sitting in the lounge room and my mum came over and checked me with meth. And I thought, like, I didn't say it to him, but I thought, fuck, like, what chance do you have? Yeah. I mean, I know what I went through and I just made it out. Like, but what chance do you have in that environment? Yeah. That is, uh, so let's talk about that a little bit. So obviously you've been on both sides of it. You've done a bit of time in prison, but then you've also worked with inmates in a coaching capacity. You've worked with uh, kids, uh, disadvantaged kids, you've worked with men in prison. You've done a lot of work outside of just the regular, you know, DFP coaching men who are struggling in regular everyday life. Tell us a little bit about some of the, the things that you've done and do you feel that those things have played a part in your own personal healing? Do you think that, that was chosen to help with your healing process? Mm, that's a complicated question, I mean, I'll get to that. <laughs> uh, like what you do, when we talk about it, trigger warnings for fuck's sake, I mean, punch your pussy, it's like, most people are hurting, most people are struggling, and I say that as, as nice as possible when I say that to be one of the best motivational, life-changing conversations someone had with me, called me a fucking pussy. 
Is that where this come from? Is it? Yeah. Don't be a fucking pussy. Turn my life around. Yeah. And, and it hurt me at the time. I was like, how dare he? And then three months later, I woke up in my sleep and I'm like, he's right. <laughs> best thing, we're not even friends, me and this guy. I don't even, he, he coached me to be a fitness trainer all these years ago. I ran into him in the gym. He's like, how are you going with that business? And I said something about doing another job because it, it pays more. It's like, you're fucking pussy. You're just scared to do it. And he was right. I mean, it hurts because I'm generally right when I say it. I mean, if I said it to the audience now, like, who's going to get offended unless they are? Because people know when they are. But it's not about me calling people out on their shit. It, it, it's trying to help people come back from uh, the place that I did. And this is why someone reached out to me uh, from a, a government department. Like you, I'm very open about what I do and my experiences. I never thought, um, I don't remember getting to a point in my life where I'm going to write Instagram posts and Facebook posts and YouTube videos about really fucked up shit in my life. But I guess it's a different time to be alive and a different way to communicate. And they reached out to me and they said, so you did all these things. Yes. And you're doing this now. Yeah. Can we talk? Was that, and that was your in, into working in the jail, was it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. How long did you do that one for? No, it was, it was over about a year period. I mean, it was a very hard uh, program to pull off. I mean, a former criminal uh, getting clearance to go into prison. I mean, it's a big no-no. Yeah. And then ultimately, uh, everything else happening, which didn't make it uh, much easier. But I mean, it was a big rule of mine as well. I said, I'm never going back to prison, not even to visit someone. And I'm not anti-government, I'm not anti-police, but it's that fucking mess and they can fix it. They're not doing a very good job. And, and like I said, if you knew the statistics about what was going on, there'd be a very different discussion going on. But also I love what I do and I'm very passionate about what I do. So not only I was running in the gym business, I was coaching disadvantaged kids with boxing, I was uh, going into prison once a week and I was just fucking exhausted, man. So after that, uh, I guess almost another version of rock bottom, I mean, being in the media wasn't a pleasant experience. But it also was the pain that made me realize I need to do things my way and I need to do it for myself, i.e. the DFP. All right, good segue. Let's talk about the DFP. Tell us a little bit about your... Actually, before we get into that, so you're back and forth with Thailand. So I want to talk a little bit about your experiences with meditation and a part of your healing. And I know you you know, you disappear off the map for bits of periods of time where you literally just go and meditate and work on yourself for periods of time. How does that feed into the DFP? And tell us a little bit about the DFP off the back of that. It's a very uh, complicated subject. I mean, I'm, I'm aware how I look. I'm aware how I look. I did, I did live on the Gold Coast for some time. Like, I'm aware how I look. Um, but that's another problem with society. I started reading books in prison. I read a book on finances. I read, and I started fixing problems in my life. I'm like, oh, so let me get this straight. If I read it and apply it, end result. I mean, it's as basic as that. So I started looking into spirituality. I started reading books on that. Uh, I guess just incidentally, just I was drawn to it. And I remember reading one particular book and I was sitting on the beach on the Gold Coast and this is the best example I can give. It's not a great example when you talk about meditation, but you'll understand it. So I'm reading this passage in the book and I'm sober, I'm straight, it's the middle of the day. 
And this passage, this book, was designed to help you kind of awaken or become enlightened. And again, very trivial words. And I just felt really fucking good. I felt like I was on drugs. I just felt good. For like no I'm just like, why do I feel so good? But then it also said this feeling doesn't last. I mean, it's like being in great shape. You need to practice it all the time. Yeah. And that's very easy to understand. But who's in great shape all the time? Fucking no one. <laughs> so I thought, huh. I got the body kind of right, let's work on this mind a little bit. And that's where, instead of going to Thailand to do more Thai or to get wasted, I thought, ah, oh, I'm going to practice meditation. I'm going to do things that people aren't doing. I'm going to sit there and do nothing. Sounds pretty fucking basic, doesn't it? It's, uh, I know for myself, one of the biggest things, I'm meditating more and more now, but it's something I've been doing for about a year. I still struggle. I struggle to shut my mind off, and it's the same thing with sleep. When I go to sleep at the night, I have a very comprehensive routine before I go to bed for that exact reason, because if I just like, okay, time to go to bed, I'll lay there staring at the roof and the fucking voices in my head are going in fucking circles 100 miles an hour, so, and it's the same with meditation. It takes a lot for me to actually, what I call drop in, to actually drop into that place where it's like, wow, I'm actually doing it. And even then, I can only hold it for brief periods of time. I've met guys who can do it much longer, but it's, I know that when I actually do succeed and when I do apply myself and I can drop in and just disconnect properly for a period of time, the benefits, it's hard to explain to people who have never been there, but when you come out of that state, it's like starting all over again. It's like a level of energy and a level of freshness that wasn't there before. Mm. Um, and I think that people who have never actually really given meditation a proper crack and actually you know, really push through wouldn't quite understand. Well, it's like someone that has a good knowledge of cars. When you start talking about the, the more technical and dynamic parts of it, like you need to know what you're talking about, otherwise it doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of the same thing with meditation. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I would have said that's some weird hippie shit, but now it's just part of what I do. Yeah. All right, so tell us about the DFP. It's a good chance to uh, throw a plug out for yourself, mate. Give us a rundown on DFP, the program, and your style of coaching in particular. Because one of my favorite pastimes is actually scrolling your Facebook and just looking at the conversations that you post between people who say they want coaching and then really, really don't when they realize that you're probably the most straight shooter on social media on earth. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the program and your coaching methodology. Big word, like that. I'll give it to you in a couple of minutes. It's basically just like a car. Guys are saying my car's blowing smoke, or I've got a flat battery, I, I'm depressed, or I've got no energy, I've got no fuel. I say, cool, bring it in. Let me see what you got. The difference, I used to be, I'm a qualified mechanic. The difference between being a mechanic and being a coach, you pay me to fix the car. And most guys don't want to do that. But like, you pay me to change the tires, you pay me to change the oil, I give it back to you, problem solved. Think about coaching, you bring it in, I say, you need to do this, you need to do that, you pay me, then you go do it on your own. That's not a good deal, but is it? I mean, I, I bring men back from the point of no return, I give them their life back. Uh, some men are suicidal, some men are depressed, some men are just out of shape. I mean, what's that worth to you? But the scary fucking thing is, just like my past life, it wasn't worth very much to me. Yeah. And that's a very hard lesson to get across to someone without triggering them, which is probably why I'm gonna steal your trigger warning, like each message. <laughs> trigger warning, I'm gonna say you. I use it more as a legal ass cover, so people go, you hurt my feelings on a podcast. Yeah, well, I got shut down on, on social media about six times last shot. year. Yeah, I'm crazy. <laughs> but I'm, honestly, I'm not trying to offend anyone, I'm not trying to be rude. I, 
I understand the seriousness of the situation. I understand the serious. The guys that contact me, they don't want sets and reps advice. They're like, my kids hate me. I want to shoot myself. I'm depressed. So would you call yourself more of a life coach? Or, I mean, obviously there's physical training inside of there. No, I, the, I wouldn't call myself yeah, a life I, coach. I hate that term as well, but... What, what do you, what, what's your sort of structure? So the DFP, how, how do you structure your program? So guys who are out there thinking of jumping on board, what does what is, you know, time in the DFP look like? Depending on where they're at and what they need, I give them assessment based on that. And I revert back to, to cars a lot, or just simple metaphors, because it's the easiest thing to understand. Men don't even know what they want, because if they knew, they'd have it. And if they were doing the work, they'd have it. So let's say a, a man brings in a, a busted-in, rusted Hyundai XL 1982. And, I mean, we can fix it, we can repair it, it's going to take a bit of work, but we can do it. But he says, I want to put a supercharger on this thing. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and then, why not? I don't think you can handle this, it's going to happen. And because it's not our car, it's us. We're very sensitive about that. And it's not easy to start from square one. It's not easy to start from rock bottom. And I work with guys who are business owners or older than me. And I was going to say I'm about to swear, but I don't think that fucking matters, does it? No, it doesn't. No, not a mission, mate. Like, you don't fucking know me. Like, look at your fucking life. Blah, blah, blah. I guess probably the same story as you here. So I'm trying to work out the best way that I can explain it to people. Because what I do does save lives but I need to do it in the way that I do it. Otherwise, like when I worked with the government or when I worked in gyms, or having to censor myself or having to filter what I say, I don't want to ever underplay um, the importance of meditation and mindset and things like that. I mean, it all goes in together and you just can't pick and choose. Yeah, it's a whole package, the training, the nutrition, the mindset. It's mm -hmm. not three individual components, it's one holistic machine. Well, they're part of my community as well. I have a community of men and I don't want to bring in destructive, negative, and, and lazy people into that environment. I mean, if they want to change, of course, they're going to start in not the best position, but if they're still in that same mindset six months later, it, it's very destructive. The same way, I mean, my mother was a perfect example for 13 years, drank herself to death. There wasn't really too many points in that where she's like, I'm going to change. So I know people will lie to your face, and I know people will sometimes choose death instead of changing. Yeah. No matter how much they say, I'm doing it for my kids. The, uh, with Black Dog Brotherhood, one of the very first things we do from day one is I get guys to do what we call a truth assessment. And it's basically big-ass, long-ass questionnaire, but it's all directed at them. And they have to answer questions about themselves. And it basically forces them to analyze every component of their life, their training, their nutrition, their mindset, their emotions from the time they wake up, their energy, just absolutely every part of their life. And a lot of guys, I've actually had guys who've tapped out after that. They're looking at like, I don't want to do this because they look at the fucking road ahead of them and they're just like, no, nah, it's, yeah. too, it's too long. Same token, I get guys who are on the phone who are thinking about getting coaching. We sit down, we talk about, like you said, you know, let's have a talk about what's up. And I'll sit there and I'll say, like, you know, I'm spending, I had one guy, he's spending 600 bucks a week on weed, alcohol, and fucking uh, smokes. And then I'm like, okay, we sat down, he's like, I need this, I need this. And I'm like, okay, are you committed to making the change? I said, it's not going to be easy, you know, there's a lot of work to do. It's like 10, 10 committed, I need this. If I keep going, I'm going to going, I'm going to die. We sat down and then like, I started to talk about the price of the program and he goes, oh, you got to pay for it. I'm like, yeah, I don't work 
for free, mate. I've got kids to feed. And he's like, oh, no, nah, it's cool, I'm good. Well, I can't afford, I, he actually said, I can't, he goes, I can't afford it. I'm like, you're spending, you just sat here and told me you're spending 600 bucks a week on killing yourself and you know that it's killing you. The program is significantly less than that. But that's just too hard basket. Straight away it becomes a story that they create to avoid doing the work. Well, I mean, like you said, I stole the car and I was sitting behind a cop car. And it's not that uh, I was thinking, oh, this is wrong. I just didn't want to get caught. My leg is very, I don't want, to, don't want to walk. Yeah, so I understand the twisted perception of some people. And this is where they may get uh, triggered or upset. Because before I even get to that point, I just say, look, I don't think you're ready to work with me. Or why don't you try this or whatever I've screenshotted <laughs> and people take it as a personal attack and I just simply say look if you really wanted this it would be like how much is it what do I need to do when does it start uh, questions like because that's what I did yeah that's what I fucking did like that's why I became who I am I wasn't like oh if I don't fix this engine part I can still drive for six months like it might blow up and totally fuck the car but I can still drive for six, six months. months. <laughs> Short-term thinking. Well, that's what people like with their fucking cars. Like, I would say, you need to change your oil, you need to change this belt, otherwise you're gonna come back in six months and it's gonna be 10 times worse and 10 times more expensive. Same thing, of like, you mechanics are full of shit. I'm like, okay, see them in six months. Fuck, I should have done that. Yes, you should have. 100%. Awesome. All right, man. Well, I think we've uh, I think we've milked this for all it's worth, brother. Um, I want to thank you for having us here in your luxurious apartment. I feel like a uh, millionaire for a brief period in time. Well, I, I just got this room simply for this video, so I look more successful than I am. <laughs> uh, I'm supposed to say that out loud. Awesome, brother. Um, mate, from me to you, I love what you do. Um, it's good to see there's other guys out there with you know a level of passion similar to what we've got, Black Dog Brotherhood. Um, and it's been awesome to actually have that crossover and you know, I look forward to you know, more crossover in the future with uh, Black Dog Brotherhood Man, and DFP I appreciate, I appreciate the DFP plug and I mean I, I do run a business at the end of the day but I know you do what I do and I, I know you would know how challenging it is and listening to one dude scream in the camera you're a fucking pussy I mean it, you cannot relate to it sometimes but when two guys are calm uh, thought about what they're saying and they're genuinely trying to help you possibly watching this it's a little bit easier to understand. I mean, I have some of my guys here at a coaching event and they're kind of, there's someone like you who talks about the same stuff? Yeah. I'm like, yes, there is. We're not the only ones doing this. Yeah. So, yeah, man, it's, it's just good to see that we're getting somewhere. Awesome, brother. So, if you are a guy who's watching this and you feel like there's something not quite right in your life, in your headspace, in your physical health, in your mental health, first thing I've got for you is it's not... You don't have to be ashamed about talking about it. Talk about it with your loved ones. Talk to your GP. Get a fucking referral to a mental health practitioner. If that's not for you, reach out to Dan, reach out to me. We've got our own coaching program that do revolve around fitness, nutrition, and mindset. The most important thing that you need to know is that you are not alone. And a lot of people don't believe it until they actually find a community like Black Dog Brother or, uh, Brotherhood or like DFP that you're not alone. There's a lot, a lot, a lot lot of guys out there just like us and just like you. So Dan, thank you so much for your time, brother. Pleasure. Take care. Godspeed. Godspeed.